Hello and welcome to this episode of Star Wars Universe Podcast, or as today might be called, the second or third or fifth episode of the Claudia Gray Appreciation Society. Yes, I am back with Riki Hayashi, and we're talking about another one of Claudia Gray's awesome novels, this time Master and Apprentice, uh, a novel that goes into the history of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and their early days with Obi-Wan as an apprentice, a book that goes even further back and shows us Qui-Gon and Dooku when Qui-Gon was a Padawan and tells us more about uh, prophecy and how Qui-Gon got so into prophecy, a book that talks about how, uh, according to some Jedi at least, is official canon that you cannot fall in love, but you can be an F-boy, as one Jedi explains to us. Uh, this is a great novel that uh, really fills in so much more of the Star Wars world. So, so Riki, so glad you're here with us. Uh, say hello, and uh, how are you feeling about this book? Yes, Claudia Gray does it again. Although this is probably my least favorite out of the three I've read so far, but I think it's a it's a really good book, and I think she, you said you mentioned that uh, she has a fourth one, so I'm, I'm gonna have to go out and find that and see if I continue to enjoy her works. And and like I said previously, I'm down you know to read some of her non Star Wars novels after this experience. I, I think she's yeah. just a a really good writer in general. Yeah, and just for those uh, listening at home, what are the other books that she's written? So we, we've we you and I have covered Star Wars Bloodline, and then, uh, oh no, wait, yeah, Lost Stars, right? Yep. And then the fourth one is Leia, Princess of Alderaan. Yep, which I I think I I did cover with someone else. Oh, okay. Uh, certainly, I've talked about it a good deal. It's another wonderful book. And yeah, I th- I think I really enjoy this book because, first of all, I just think her writing is great. There's some other books that you and I have talked about where we really appreciate the details of the universe it spells out or some character moments, but the writing style isn't the best. I think Claudia just does a great job of writing. I think she – the point of view character shifts a lot and it's really interesting to see that. And it, it's just some of my favorite parts of the Star Wars universe we're getting to see explored because mostly – we're getting to dive deeper into this question of how does how do the Jedi raise Padawans and how does it prepare or not prepare them for the the things they will face? We get to learn more about Qui-Gon, we get to learn more about Obi-Wan, and we get to learn about um sort of some of the other Jedi's that they're out there with. Yeah, for me, like I've read a lot of Star Wars novels. Not as many as you know, you know, like Jonah Kelman, but too many of them, in my opinion, are action-driven because mm-hmm. the characters are very familiar, especially the Legends novels when when they center on like Luke, Leia, Han, etc. Yep. There's not much you can add to those characters. So they end up being like those characters going on adventures. And maybe you get a few new characters mixed in, like your Talon cards, Mara Jades, etc. And you get to learn about them. But... Even with familiar characters, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Qui-Gon Jinn, Claudia has done such a great job of characterizing them and Mm -hmm. to establish who they become. Because this this takes place some number of years before The Phantom Menace. So it's it's setting up who who they're going to be by the time we see them in the movies. Obi-Wan, I believe, is 14 in the main part of this story, or 15. Yeah, teenager of, of some age. Yeah. And I'm going to give a plot summary in just a second. So for those who either haven't read the book or haven't read it in a while, don't worry. We're just going to talk a bit more about the kind of book in general. For me, it felt like it, part of what I think worked and made it such a character-driven story is that the plot itself isn't some big – like this isn't a moment where the Republic almost fell. This This feels like – in my imagination, if we had a TV show about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan – like going on Jedi adventures, this feels kind of like an episode of the week, a story of the week, except for maybe like this would be the pivotal episode at the end of season one, where every episode they go to some new planet and they have some new adventure where the Jedi are needed. But mostly it's about the developing relationship between the two of them. And in this one, the the relationship between the two of them has kind of come to a head and they're at a major decision point. And so by the end of decision, 
this episode, we've kind of wrapped up season one and we're ready for season two. D- does that kind of make sense to you? Of like, It feels like it's a kind of story of the week in terms of the, the stakes that are happening. But for the, the, their relationship and their characters, some major developments happening here. Well, I would watch that show. You know, we could call right? it Tales of the <laughs> Jedi, perhaps. Yeah. No, but I, I, think, I think I agree with you. Like, that's the feel this has. Tales of the Jedi is an animated show that follows uh, Ahsoka and Dooku kind of like going back and forth and mm-hmm. showing, you know, pre uh, the prequel movies, like how they get to where they are or the, the Clone Wars cartoon, yeah. I guess, in the case of Ahsoka. And we do see a little bit of Qui-Gon in that one as well. So for me, after seeing Tales of the Jedi, it was interesting to get to fit the pieces together because I, I'm someone who I did not read very many of the prequel era novels. So mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of backstory about Dooku. I think you covered, what is it called? Dooku yeah. Fallen Jedi or Jedi Lost or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the audio novel. And so I, I've been getting a lot of information about Dooku that I did not previously have. Yeah. Yeah, and this is great because we get to see more of Dooku as a Jedi Master and as he trains his Padawan, Qui-Gon. So let me give you kind of a quick plot summary. Uh, as I said, the main part of the book is about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. And they're at this kind of difficult point in their time together where they're feeling like they're constantly at odds with each other. And they're both frustrated by the relationship Obi-Wan is very much a by-the-book rules, the Jedi Council says to do it this way, and Qui-Gon is really kind of uh, a bit of a uh, a maverick. He's he's off on his own, he's doing his own thing. He's very, like, to me, Captain Kirk and, and Qui-Gon would get along very well, in that Qui-Gon will often be like, well, here's the spirit of what the Jedi intended, but we're going to play it a little fast and loose to, to honor the spirit and, and maybe play a little fast and loose with the letter of the law. But they're frustrated. They're not really connecting with each other. Qui-Gon is into more of like the living force and the spiritual side and the prophecies. And Obi-Wan doesn't really feel that. And so they're sent together on this mission to a planet called Pyjal, Pyjal, uh, where one of their colleagues, another Jedi called Ral, uh, he had had this very difficult experience a long time ago where the Padawan who he was with kind of got mind-controlled and he had to kill her. And it's a very difficult situation. He probably made some real mistakes that let that happen. He's been sent off to help on this other planet where a young princess was supposed to rule, but she was too young. He's basically been the regent. And he's been raising her kind of as a daughter while also trying to guide this planet towards uh, a new day. And what they're supposed to be guiding it to is a shift from absolute to constitutional monarchy. And Qui-Gon and and meanwhile, though, this group called the Opposition is trying to kill the princess, Princess Fanry. So Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are sent to be the official representatives of the Republic at this new uh, treaty signing, which will move it from a cons- uh, an absolute to a constitutional monarchy, and also to help keep the princess safe, and also just kind of check in on Royale. <laughs> they find that things have been going well in some ways, but there's a lot of problems. Uh, this corporation called Zerxa, uh, C-Z-E-R-K-A, I believe, uh, Sezerka, however you pronounce it, um, is pretty shady. They practice institutionalized slavery, which is theoretically illegal in the Republic, but but it's kind of almost like the Dred Scott decision in our own country, where where Northerners were allowed to, uh, Southerners were allowed to bring slaves into Northern territory and they couldn't be freed. Uh, uh, I'm getting the dread- details of Dred Scott decision wrong, but the, the the point being that like the courts in the Republic are not very good at it. If Republic people are around slave owning people from outside the Republic, they have to honor it. Um, so slavery is still in- established, and uh, we learn more and more that the opposition, which is actually more of a performing arts troupe, which has done a couple of things, they're being branded as terrorists, but really it's some other group that is doing the violence. They just want to. Make people aware of that. There's this huge problem with with this company called Zerxa, Suzerka, and the the treaty is going to be bad. And they want people aware of it. They want people aware of slavery, of the corporate oppression, all these problems going on. Our heroes get caught up in all of this. <clears throat> Rayal, uh, him, Rayal, the Jedi I mentioned, he is the uh, F boy I mentioned. He specifically gives a speech to uh, Obi Wan and Qui Gon where he says, "There's." Um, this is a direct quote, nothing wrong with getting laid as a Jedi. You just can't fall in love. Uh, we'll go into more of the details of that in a bit. But he clearly 
it, it becomes pretty clear he's so focused on protecting the princess that he's not he doesn't want to see any of the other details. He doesn't want to know about the treaty. Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are kind of caught in the middle. They get involved with some others who are trying to uh, – jewel thieves who are trying to help out. What it all builds to is that Qui-Gon has these dreams about a terrible thing is going to happen at the treaty signing. He didn't want to go along with it anyway, but decides especially not to go along with it because of the dreams he's had. Obi-Wan kind of goes behind Qui-Gon's back, but in that kind of like – my superior is disobeying. I should go to their superior kind of a way. The Jedi say, no, go ahead with a treaty signing. And at the treaty signing, instead of it turning out that there's an attack on Princess Fonry, it turns out she's been behind this Blackguard thing all along because she actually is completely convinced that this corporation is terrible and wrong. And so she wants to hold on to absolute power, throw out the corporation entirely and do vengeance on them and, and kill all their people. Uh, our heroes intervene, thinking that she's wrong, and and so she has to be stopped. And it turns out she's just kind of like lost in her power. She has to be stopped, but in the end, she's basically proven right. The company is thrown off. A constitutional government is set up, uh, and our heroes uh, ride off into the sunset with Qui Gon and Anakin, with Qui Gon and Obi Wan having decided that they should be buddies and Padawan and master after all. Uh, Huge plot summary. It's mostly about characters. So I think the character development is really what matters a lot most. But but did I get most of like the plot details right? I think the yes, but I think the big thing that you didn't mention is that at the beginning of the novel, the Jedi Council offers Qui Gon a seat ah, yes. on the council, this is a big part. and he has a decision to make. Primarily because if he accepts a seat on the council, he can no longer have a Padawan. And mm -hmm. so, spoilers, obviously, by Phantom Menace, he's Obi-Wan is still his Padawan, so he declines the seat on the council at the end of the novel after going through yeah. this adventure and kind of working things out with Obi-Wan. Part of the reason he's initially thinking about doing it is because he has a very troubled relationship with Obi-Wan, and they're not yeah. getting along. They're not in sync in, in an opening battle. They just literally were not in sync on, on how to communicate and fight together. And so this this adventure is as much about them talking to each other and learn, yeah. learning each other's tendencies and understanding each other and reaching a reconciliation where they can work together. And that is one of the reasons that Qui-Gon eventually rejects the offer to join the council. Agreed. I'm really glad you brought that up, especially because a very important plot point is that Qui-Gon doesn't tell Obi-Wan this at first. Instead, Obi-Wan finds out. And so Obi-Wan, I think with some justification and also with some – you're a 15-year-old and you take everything very personally, believes that this is Qui-Gon abandoning him and that Qui-Gon didn't even have the decency to tell him. And there's just – the communication between them is really bad and at times – there are times where it's kind of like those moments when you want to yell at the TV, like just talk to each other instead of both <laughs> of you feeling all these feelings. It-it's kind of the perfect lead-in to one of the things I think this book really highlights, which I want to get your feelings on, which is that – I know right now in fandom, there's a lot of these debates about like, you know, did the Jedi fail Anakin and did the Jedi fail in general? And there's a lot of people who want to defend Anakin as though he did absolutely nothing wrong and it's all the Jedi's fault. And I think that's ridiculous. And I personally just think that because of that, there's a lot of people who want to go all the other way and say, no, no, no the Jedi were great. It's not their fault that Anakin rejected their teachings. And I've now read a number of books, and there was one recently read about uh, Inquisitor, uh, The Rise of the Red Blade, that kind of goes somewhat into this. But even with this one, I think that we're finding more and more evidence that the master-apprentice system and the there is no emotion, repress your feelings, it, it just – there was a lot of problems in this system. And there's a lot – because there's, there's certainly a lot of th times that I'm looking at this and I don't blame Qui-Gon himself necessarily, though I think he screws up a bunch. And I'm just thinking like this is not a healthy way to raise children. No, it's not. And that's one of the other things it's, this novel sets up is that the character Rael Everos mm – -hmm. and because this is a novel, we – we have no idea how to pronounce some of these names, so we might yeah. say them differently, like Rael, Rael, Rael. But the the Jedi Regent, they say um, that he was brought into the Order at the age of five, I believe, mm -hmm. and that was considered late, like too old. 
and and that is that explains like why he is a bit rebellious and out of sync with the uh, Jedi Order. And of course, mm-hmm. Anakin, I believe, in Phantom Menace is ten ish. Yeah. So even much older, and and they raise that concern in that in that movie, but this sets up like the even five is too old for they consider too old for the Jedi indoctrination. I'm going to call I, it. I actually have the exact quote pulled up. I'm so glad you brought it up. Uh, and this is a uh, it's from I believe it's Qui Gon's perspective. Perhaps a Jedi Knight with a more conventional background wouldn't have been excused so easily. But Ral was an extreme latecomer to the temple, fully five years old before he was identified on Ringo Vinda the oldest youngling ever brought in, as far as Qui-Gon knew. Those years made a profound difference. Rael had never fully mastered the subconscious controls that were trained in a most Jedi from infancy. The members of the Avros family were people he missed terribly. The large majority, of, large majority of Jedi didn't know their birth families at all. The exceptions went no further than speaking, on rare occasions, to relatives who were little more than strangers. Rael's manners were rough. Those of the orbital station rat he'd been rather than the Jedi he hoped to become. He never lost his Ringo Vindian accent. And I just love that detail because I think you're right. It's really speaking to how the, the, the system of let go of all attachments really works if you, you never form attachments. You're too old. You're too young yeah, to remember how to. If you're too young to remember. I mean, Obi-Wan Kenobi himself was like, I think I had a brother, right? Yeah. And so, like they try to they try to get these children before they can remember who their family was, and that just sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah, it really does, and especially with as we've been kind of balancing, like in later stories, like look at who are all the great Jedi: Luke, um, uh, Cal Kestis, um, uh, Kanan, Ezra. Like these are all people who are much older and formed attachments, you know. Uh, in healthier ways, but yeah. So there, there's just so much about the and 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 the, the number of times where they're just and this I think have come up in a number of other things that I've read recently about ma- masters and padawans, the degree to which they're trying to read each other, but they're not they're not saying it directly. And there's a moment where oh, one of the reasons why Obi Wan has felt so. Um, estranged is that Qui-Gon isn't teaching him more about how to fight. He's he's only giving him the basic forms. And uh, he keeps wondering about this and feeling like, does this mean his master judges him or his master thinks he's not a good lightsaber fighter or what is it? And finally, Qui-Gon breaks down and says, no, this is why I did it. And he, he says it in this very kind of apologetic way. And Obi-Wan says, the, the text is, Obi-Wan remained quiet for so long that Qui-Gon wondered if he were too angry to really hear any of what he'd said. But finally, his Padawan nodded. Thank you, Qui-Gon. I appreciate that. But but what? You could have said so. Obi-Wan replied, and then he left. And to me, that quote is just such a perfect illustration of like the breakdown of communication that happens here. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful... It's a beautiful setup for the character of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, I, I'm not well-versed enough in the lightsaber dueling methods to know all the names, but I do know that Obi-Wan favors a, like a very basic defensive style of fighting, and he's considered right. like the, one of the masters of that by the time of the movies, and it's one of the reasons that he's able to defeat Maul you know, multiple times. Um, because he's so good at this defensive style. And, and I love that this novel sets that up of like why he's so good at it. Because like, yeah. kind of Qui-Gon has held him back from the other styles, right? But he's he's helped him to master this basic so well. Yeah. And, and I think also, therefore, to know the different forms, because yeah, there's a great um, YouTube that goes around that really breaks down the last fight he has with Dooku. Uh, sorry, with uh, um, Maul. Uh, where it talks about how like he goes through three different styles in the in the lead up to that with the lightsabers, but also so much of it, I feel like this gives me such a better picture of who Obi Wan is and why, in terms of the how he comes to have like such a he's really a by the book kind of a Jedi. Um, we also in a moment that made me think of you, uh, you often refer to him as the Steve Irwin of the Jedi universe. We get to find the first moment that Obi Wan connects with an animal. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm guessing you love that moment. Yeah, it, I, it just keeps happening, and I don't know if the people who write stuff 
do it intentionally or it's just an accident or what, but because it's it's never acknowledged in the way, say, like Ezra Bridger's connection with animals is is acknowledged and developed, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I, I do love I do love Obi Wan and his animals. Yeah, I I felt like this wasn't. I I felt like they were pretty aware of the Steve Irwinness of Obi Wan in, in writing this scene and like give, giving those fans the here's where it all started. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, his kind of by the book nature, but also at the same time, his like anti uh, Jedi Council stance, right? Mm-hmm. In the Phantom Menace, he ends up defying the Council at the end and saying, "I'm going to train Anakin Skywalker, whether you you know let me or not, because right. I owe it to Obi Wan." And this Qui Gon, you mean? Or, sorry, yeah, to Qui Gon, and this definitely sets up. The roots of that connection, not just with his master, but also with the prophecies. Yeah. And let's let's get into that because, you know, it's funny. We were just saying how Qui-Gon recognizes that maybe even Rayal is too old to start the training. And so there's a part of you that has to be like, he must have thought that with Anakin. But clearly a big part of it is because as, as this book really establishes, Qui-Gon is 100% a believer in the prophecies. Um, how do you feel about how that that was all talked about in the book? Um, very interesting, especially the connections with Dooku. Like, Dooku is set up as the original kind of, like, prophecy guy when he was Mm -hmm. Qui-Gon's master, got him interested in the prophecies. And Dooku, like, kind of stepped away from that a bit, and when Qui-Gon got really interested in it, that caused Dooku to kind of get reinvigorated in the prophecies and possibly facilitated his fall to the dark side. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in this novel, they present uh, six prophecies, is what I'm seeing listed, mm-hmm. and and of course the important one that's mentioned in the regarding Anakin is where is it? Ah, oh, the chosen one. Yeah, chosen one shall come, born of no father, and through him will ultimate balance in the Force be restored. Right. <clears throat> yeah, it's and and what, what the story winds up telling us is that it's it's because of these dreams that wind up coming true that Qui Gon feels so dedicated to prophecy. Yeah, he Qui Gon believes he has a a force prophecy dream regarding the coronation ceremony ceremony, and and takes the actions he does in this novel because of that in defiance of the council even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think the the concept of prophecy is an interesting one, and the concept uh, like we've never really learned more about what the prophecy was. I have to say though, I didn't love. I I enjoyed getting to learn more about the backstory and the history of it. <clears throat> I, and may, maybe I actually agree more with the book than I think I do. I, I think. To me, the degree to which Qui-Gon is willing to throw everything else aside because of the prophecy is problematic. It's not heroic. Did did you see it as like, okay, good, Qui-Gon's the one who's willing to listen to the Force and listen to the truth? Or did you see it uh, as more problematic? Um, I would say that there's there's two different interpretations here. Mm-hmm. Or two different ways to think about it. The first is... His personal decision to follow his force dream is one thing, right? right? Because he experiences that personally and sees what he does in his dream. And it's left to him to to interpret it. And he does, I think, kind of misinterpret it in some ways. And afterwards Mm -hmm. kind of retcons and says, oh, that's what it meant. Right. Versus the written down Jedi prophecies from thousands of years ago, which – The people reading about them, like in the now of this novel, have no idea what the original Force visions were. They're only reading those Jedi's interpretations of it and then trying to glean their own interpretation of that. So, like, we've seen this in the real world with Nostradamus is, like, the most famous case where people have been like, oh, this, like, obscure Nostradamus thing, that meant, you know, World War II and Hitler, even though, like, the details are, are different and wrong. You can you can like kind of force it into place, 
Yeah. People do that with the Bible all the time. They do it with all kinds of pro- prophecies and sacred texts and all sorts of things like that. And so I think it's one thing to say to say Qui-Gon acting as he did based on his own personal vision is one thing versus like how do we interpret these prophecies from thousands of years ago is like a completely different thing because those yeah like even in our own time like stuff has been translated and translated again and we we, we just don't know what the original text said or meant mm-hmm. like for the time like the word may have been translated correctly but the the concept and how it's used in society could be completely different one thing i thought was really interesting is that we have not seen dreams occur very often in Star Wars. And I think there are other examples, but for me, by far the most prominent example of a dream that might be a prophecy in all of Star Wars is in Revenge of the Sith, where Anakin dreams about Padme's death and the death of his children. And I think it is never quite revealed whether like Palpatine like used force magic to make him have that dream or if it was him you know, dreaming about something and then just prophecy leading him down a very bad path but like the fact that those dreams were so negative uh in their in their eventual impact and and there it, it set up a sort of by trying to stop the thing that you were dreaming about you caused the thing you were dreaming about there's a very it's very interesting to me that dreams are the kind of plot point that move things forward here yeah there was that one uh in empire strikes back luke while he's training, I, I don't know if you want to call it a dream, but he has a vision about uh, Han and Leia in Cloud City. And then uh, Ray, Ray and Kylo, when they are sharing their Force dyadness, they both yeah. refer to like seeing each other. Like when the time comes, like you will join me. It's like no, you you will join me. And they're both trying to like interpret the situation of like who who's right. And it's like, they're both right, but again, like, they have interpreted it incorrectly. Right. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. And it's it it, it just kind of put a further spin on it. And there's one passage again here that I want to read because I I think this is what Claudia Gray is getting at, but maybe I'm not. But I – this passage especially made me think Qui-Gon's interest in the – because one of the things that should – this passage especially is what led me to think like Qui-Gon's interest in the, the prophecies is, is not the best idea. And and that's one of the things that – why Dooku is warning uh, Qui-Gon against going too deep into the prophecies and then Dooku kind of has to be reminded of that as well. The the idea is put forth that trying to understand the prophecies is, 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 a, is an attempt to control the future in a way that is – related to the dark side if it's an attempt to sort of instead of just living in the moment and and I, I thought that was really telling and then this passage really hit it for me because Obi-Wan brings that up uh, and Qui-Gon says I'm not turning to the dark side Qui-Gon snapped not every disagreement with Jedi orthodoxy turns you into a Sith Lord overnight I didn't mean that Obi-Wan sighed if you won't listen to me about the visions will you at least listen to me about our mission our mandate on Bajal comes straight from Chancellor Kaj herself, and she was very clear. We're here to protect Princess Fanray and witness the treaty so the hyperspace corridor can be opened. If we have to push for the treaty to be amended and made fair, then that's what we'll do. But you can't refuse to sign on behalf of the Republic. You don't have the authority to make that choice. His apprentice wasn't wrong, but when facts collided with ideals, Qui-Gon preferred to change the facts. <laughs> you can't change... That sentence is- you can't change Go facts, Qui Gon. Right? That's not how facts work. But like, like to me, that's those are the words of of a fundamentalist. That's that's the like I don't want to believe in you know whatever scientific thing they're trying to reject. So I'm just going to change the facts. Yeah. But it, it reminds me a lot of when people there's a quote you know like data never lies, but people mm-hmm. use data to lie all the time. Exactly. Like even correct data, like you can <clears throat> present it in a way that will support your point of view even even if that's not what it's actually doing right so yeah that that is a huge problem with prophecy is a can you change anything or by you know the classic time travel thing by you knowing about the future are you going to cause it to happen you know type of thing and then b like interpretation like you the, the the whole prophecy right 
that's written in this book that we, we've heard about a lot. A chosen one shall come, born of no father. And I think that it's mentioned that, like, Shmi doesn't know Anakin's father or is, like, Im- impregnated by the Force or something, right? Like, is a weird mm-hmm. Plagius novelization thing. Yeah. And through him will ultimate balance in the Force be restored. And I've said on this podcast before, like, why would the Jedi want balance? There are thousands, tens of thousands of Jedi, and to their knowledge, zero Sith. So to bring balance to the Force, in my interpretation, was for the Sith to ascend and to destroy the Jedi to some degree. Well, I think this is one of those times where, again, you can read anything into it. Because I think that is a very valid, you know, that Darth Vader did bring balance because he created a situation where there were two Sith and two Jedi. Um, but then the math got <laughs> well, all more, screwed more now. things. We keep finding right. out more. But like another interpretation of it, and I think this again comes from more recent stuff, is this idea that the Jedi are living in balance with the Force, but that the Sith want to control the Force and are thus bringing the Force out of balance. And yeah. so that if the world is all Jedi and no Sith or no dark side Force users, then that – But I, so that I think is another interpretation. You could see it either way. But I think eventually, yeah, the point exactly is, like, we have no idea what it means. And for Qui-Gon to get this obsessed, this focused on it, like, to me, in a lot of ways, what this book does is to say both Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan were somewhat wrong for taking on Anakin the way they did. This book isn't trying to justify it. It's trying to help you understand and explain it. Yeah. Um, It's really interesting. And there, so there are other prophecies presented. Yeah, let's hear about in, some of the other novel. ones. And they're very interesting. So one of them, she who will be born to darkness will give birth to darkness. And keep in mind, this novel came out, I believe, in 2019. So this is like right in the midst of the post schools. That would be like after The Last Jedi was released, but before Rise of Skywalker, but. Claudia Gray probably was given like a script or like a synopsis mm-hmm. of Rise of Skywalker at this point. But this seems like it refers to Leia, right? Born of darkness yeah. will give birth to darkness. Darth Vader's daughter giving birth to Kylo Ren. Or it could be pointing at some future thing. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Or it could be about something that happened 600 years in the past. Yeah. I mean, that's that's where it all goes. The one that plays into this novel is uh, when the Kyber that is not Kyber shines forth, the time of prophecy will be at hand. Um, and in this novel, there is a there is a crystal that kind of registers as Kyber, but it isn't. It's like mm-hmm. it's like I, I can't remember what what its actual name is, but they call it like false Kyber as well. Yeah, like fool's Kyber. Yeah, and they do something really interesting with it where Fanry and her people are able to basically create shields that the Jedi lightsabers can't penetrate. Uh, yes. And it turns out eventually that there is a reason why they can penetrate them, which is why if you ask why isn't everyone using this later, if it's like Beskar point, 2.0, it's not. But but that's definitely where that prophecy comes from. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it could also potentially be referring – here I go interpreting my own interpretation – that it could mm-hmm. be uh, referring to the Death Star, because yeah. the Death Star is powered by Kyber crystals, but maybe like the process changes it somehow so that it's quote unquote not Kyber. But it's certainly, po- I mean, we know that the Sith lightsabers are corrupted Kyber crystals, and ah, so possibly the the it, it's an extension of the whole thing. The- I don't know. Uh, let's talk about as I think is a a convenient plot point, but one that I think this wor- uses well. Is the idea of like when you have two people who are kind of arguing over how far to go, you introduce a third character who's the example of like going far further. And I think they do that well here by kind of balancing that, yes, Qui-Gon is pretty far outside the lines, but is definitely uh, not quite so far as dear Mr. Rael. What do you think of his character? I actually didn't like his character <laughs> very mm-hmm. much. Um and part of it is I I didn't really understand not not just his character but like why he was here like it it really 
I guess, went against my understanding of the Jedi of this time and the Jedi Council, that they sent a Jedi to be a regent of a, of a planet or a star system. Like, that seems to me to be outside the bounds of Jedi involvement. Like, they don't have, like, a full prime directive, but it, it, it seems, like, way too political for them. I mean, it felt to me like, and again, I, I mean, the more I talk about this, the more I think Claudia Gray is being quite critical of the Jedi, but in ways that I think are somewhat uh, honored. He has had this horrible experience of losing his Padawan that he is probably to some large degree at fault for. What he needs is a therapist. Like he needs someone to sit down with and talk through that in a way that he can both not feel like over overwhelmed by the guilt and want to destroy himself, but also really come to terms with that guilt and come to terms with what did you do wrong and take accountability of it. And and the certain sense I get is that the Jedi don't they don't have the means and they don't have the desire to do that in part because of this whole like don't live in the past, live in the moment. Emotion is you know there is no emotion. There's only peace, and it it definitely feels like this is a like let's just send him to boarding school. You know, let's let's put him out of the way and then mostly forget about him. Because I think you're right. I think if the Jedi had been paying attention to what he was doing and that he was basically ruling instead of just kind of being an executor maybe of other people's plans, it, it's pretty far afield of what the Jedi I think are supposed to be doing. But it fits the idea of the Jedi just kind of losing control and don't don't really have an idea of what all the Jedi are out there doing. Yeah, I mean, by definition, a regent is is the power, is the decision maker in lieu mm -hmm. of, in, in this case, a princess, a, a child who is not yet of age to rule. So like the, yeah. the princess in this case would never make an actual decision. It's up to the regent to make the decision and be teaching the princess and say, this, these right. are the things you have to do once you come of age and, and become the ruler. And I do think I could see a world in which because – I mean, the problem with a the regent, therefore, is are they going to want to have power for themselves? I mean, that's the whole point of so many fantasy novels or various points of Game of Thrones or things like that. And so the idea that a Jedi who doesn't want power, who will happily give up power, could sort of play this middleman role, it does make sense. But yeah, I think it's, it is, it's pushing the bounds of what the Jedi are supposed to do enough that I would think there'd be a lot more oversight, and a lot more control. Yeah. I want to read the passage that, that in my mind, gave uh, Avaros uh, F-boy status because it, it, the language struck me as like very not Star Wars, but also is just such an interesting way of looking at this concept that I want to hear your thoughts on it. And this is when Obi-Wan and, and Qui-Gon have quite literally caught Avaros, Rael Avaros, in bed with someone. And uh, he says the, – the writing is, damn, but Avaros wished he had that ale around now. And then he speaks, quote – Falling in love, that's what the Jedi Code forbids. Getting laid, not so much. Not if it's casual like me and Selby. That that doesn't compromise my emotions, doesn't divide my loyalties, anything like that. I might have broken the letter of the law, but not the spirit. On Felucia, you broke the spirit of the law into a dozen places. And that that's referring to another thing uh, that, that Obi-Wan had done, uh, that Qui-Gon had done at one point. Do we know what yeah, that what, is? Are we supposed I, to I know? know I'm not sure. Uh, we may it may well be revealed in something, but but just kind of sticking with Avaros says, yeah. What do you think of this take on? Um, yeah, I can sleep around. I just can't fall in love. Again, I don't like him. <laughs> I think this is mm -hmm. probably one of the reasons I don't like him. I think it makes kind of sense what he's saying, mm -hmm. but I'm I'm a romantic at heart, you know, so mm -hmm. I'm not into the as you say f boy status. Yeah. It, it is very interesting the way he says it because it's funny in, in the world of polyamory and some of that kind of challenging of nothing wrong with monogamy itself, but just of the monogamy as like the only way to love. I think one of the ideas that's put forth is the idea that like casual, like what is referred to as casual sex, like having sex with someone without an ongoing relationship can still be very emotional. It still can have a lot of intimacy. It still can be about sharing something with the other person, whether it's, you know, a lifelong friendship that falls into bed once or just like a momentary connection because sex can be really fun. The way he's talking about it, though, it seems it goes to the opposite end of like, he doesn't quite say we're just using each other, but that's pretty much the implication here. And and yeah, it's, it's – I appreciated them further spelling out that there's this like question of like what's the letter of the law versus what's the spirit of the law mm -hmm. because 
Like, I know a lot of people will defend, again, the Jedi with Anakin of saying, like, no, he could have been in love with Padme. He just had to do it without attachments. And I don't think that's accurate. I think by the time of Anakin, it's pretty clear he's not supposed to be physically, you know, romantically in love with anyone or have physical, sexual, romantic feelings towards anyone at all. Um, and so hearing them explicitly say, like, yes, it is against the letter of the law even to have kind of, you know, emotionless, commitmentless sexual encounter with someone. I was like, okay, good. That that felt – I didn't love his character, but I appreciated sort of this fills in more pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, and it makes me wonder where – I mean, I guess this has to be before um, Obi-Wan meets and falls in love with Satine, right? Because he's a little too, oh, yeah. he's a little too young for that. Mm-hmm. So – it, it would be interesting, like, that. that's definitely a Star Wars story I want to see or read, yep. is is that adventure and how they fall in love. Because I think it's so central to Obi-Wan. Say her name, Star Wars, please. Yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> say her name. And and we're, we're talking about uh, Satine Kreeze, who's a Mandalorian duchess, who during the Clone mm-hmm. Wars, it's revealed that her and Obi-Wan... We're in love, are in love, had a relationship, question marks. That's why we need the story. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think if she points... at one point says quite literally, I would I would have given up the Jedi Order for her. Yes, yes. For you, he says, yeah. And I, I, not only do I want them to tell the story because, again, I'm a romantic, but because it could help fill in like these gaps of what yeah. is it that the Jedi Order is against and why? Because Obi-Wan... You know, he had he has these feelings. I don't, I don't think he would deny that he has these feelings. But as a Jedi Knight or Jedi Master, he does not let those feelings compromise his decision making. Mm-hmm. And I and to me, like that is what you're supposed to do. Like, you can't deny your right. feelings; they exist, they happen. But you cannot right. allow your feelings to cloud your judgment. You have to do what is right for the greater good as right. a Jedi. Well, and I think that's where this becomes interesting because, and again, this is sort of the like, it, it feels to me like the the Jedi had at one point an idea of this healthy understanding of the power, but also the danger of romance and sexuality and things like that. And now they've basically moved to abstinence only. Yeah. Because like, you know, we know Kanan Cain, and Hera literally have a child, uh, as as told in Rebels. So we know that they were sexually active, um, you know, and, and certainly they were very romantic toward each other. They were very loving toward each other. And it didn't lead him to the dark side. It did the exact opposite. So, yeah, just, just another really interesting part of the story there. Um, and let's from him, let's get into this. Because, again, it, it feels in some ways like this is like a CSI or Law and Order thing where the main thing is the development of the characters, not the story of the week. But it is a fun story of the week. Um, and to me, the main interesting thing, especially for us, is kind of like people like to talk about ethics and character decisions. What do you think about this whole story of this planet with this big corporate influence and and the decision the princess eventually makes? Uh, the, yeah, so the corporation, I'm going to call it Cherka. I don't know, like Czech, Cherka. The, the Cherka Corporation is a terrible company. Like they engage yeah. in slavery and it, it sounds like at least like in their relationship with this planet, very predatory treaty signings, like almost deceptive treaty signings in, in mm-hmm. designed to like enslave individuals, but also like potentially like enslave this entire planet, not necessarily as slaves, but as a, as a like state vassal, vassal yeah. state to them. And my understanding is that this corporation has a long history um in legends, I don't know how much in canon, but like the mm-hmm. dates dates back to like old High Republic days. So, oh, interesting. It, it has been around for a long time, and maybe we'll see more of it, like in um, in canon, because it, it's got kind of like Wayland Yutani feels to it um, mm-hmm. from the Aliens franchise, Alien <clears throat> franchise of like this massive corporation that's just like up to no good but no one can really do anything about it because it's so big yeah it definitely feels like they would be part of like separatist trade federation kind of we don't want the republic limiting what we can do kind of things and and so here i'm going to throw down a bit of a gauntlet and i'm curious if it 
given conversations we've had in the past, I think we're going to disagree, but I'm curious. I may be wrong here. I am mostly on the like, you know, Magneto is right. Killmonger had some good points. Princess Fanry was right. Um, and it, to me, it frustrated me in terms of the writing because what it felt like was she makes these very – she's the only one who is willing to actually say, no, we can't have this. You know, the Republic, I think they, they talk about how there's this like hyperspace lane that needs to happen. And so they're willing to kind of turn a blind eye or like, we'll promise to try and reform things with Circa later. But it, the assumption is it's never going to happen. Um, everyone's trying to push them towards this governmental treaty. And she's the one who's saying like, no, I won't do that. And I'm not going to give up power if if it means I I, I can't stop that. And I, granted, I, I love a good villain. And I think I'm often a little bit more outside the pale in terms of what people are willing to push for. But there are times when I think something that happens a lot in sort of superhero action sci-fi things is you're presented with a villain who actually makes some really good points that are really challenging the establishment but they're a little bit too willing to kill. They're a little bit too indiscriminate about who they fight. And so our heroes have to stop them. And like in some of the later X-Men movies, it kind of felt like this way about Magneto, where the writers sort of got two thirds of the way through and they went, oh, wait, but we have to make Magneto uh, a villain. So let's just have him kill people for no good reason. That's kind of how I felt here. I felt like Princess Van Ray was completely justified in saying like, no, this is all terrible. This corporation's horrible. I'm going to use my power to push them out. And I was disappointed that she was so quickly framed as, I want all the power for myself. Anyone who gets in my way, I'm going to kill them too. And thus she became a villain that had to be stopped. What what was kind of your take on, on her storyline and how that all played out? Yeah, so the, in the novel, it's set up as a mystery. Like the whole thing with the opposition terrorist group, which ends up being not terrorist, but like a political action, like flash mob mm-hmm. group almost yeah. they're, they're kind much, of yeah. they're comical it's like comic relief like oh like you can't be the terrorist like you're yeah. you barely have any weapons and i will be honest like i was not looking for clues as to who the um who was behind it all who was behind the curtain mm-hmm. because i didn't really care about it that much and so when it happened i was like oh okay it's her and uh, I guess it surprised me, but I hadn't been looking and Mm -hmm. I didn't really care. Yeah. I think it's because of what you said. I don't think, I don't think she was set up. The princess Fanry was set up as a, a strong enough character in the beginning parts of the novel for this, you know, sudden and inevitable betrayal to be interesting. So Mm -hmm. probably one of the weaker parts of the book is her character and her relationship with Rail Avaros. Because, yeah, because she has she has this thing where it's like, you never listened to me. Like, you only wanted me to be like what you saw me as and never asked me my opinion. And I don't mm-hmm. like that was a lot of telling. And I don't know that there was enough showing of that throughout. Yeah, that's fair. I think it's very fair. I, between her and Obi-Wan, it did make me wonder if Claudia Gray had like some teenagers in her life with a high degree of petulance because the petulant teenager trope is very present in oh. both of them. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I guess they're about the similar age. And maybe, mm-hmm. I mean, not that she would listen to this podcast, but that, that I think that would have been an interesting way to develop her character more is have her play off of Obi-Wan more. Like, did they, mm-hmm. did they interact much? I can't remember now. They didn't. And I have to say, I think it could have been interesting. I think it would have. And this is unfortunately just the, the nature of media is that if you put two teenagers, especially of different genders together in a work like this, oh, yeah. the speculation is always going to be that it's romantic in some way. And so I'm kind of glad we didn't get that. But I think I agree with what you're saying. It felt kind of tacked on. In some ways, I felt like that could have been its own book is just all the stuff about Real. And, it, and I wonder somewhat also if this was like kind of two books pushed together or, you know, what happened in production. But it was – I thought it was an interesting story and I'm glad we're kind of similar on on where she's coming from because – Especially, and this is again like, you know, the Killmonger had bad ideas, but at the end of the movie, T'Challa does all the things that, that well, T'Challa winds up at least listening to the main critiques that Killmonger was making and doing a lot of things he wanted, even if not the more violent ones. And in the same way, the the slavery-loving company is pushed completely off this planet in a way that never would have happened if the princess hadn't done this. So I'm kind of like, well, she, what she did kind of worked. <laughs> yeah, but here's the difference. Killmonger starts from a position of no power 
and he seeks the power. He seeks the throne of Wakanda in order to make the changes he wants to see in the world. Right. Princess Fanry had, like, not as, I don't know what it's called when you're under the Regency, but she is set up to become the power, even though at the Mm -hmm. treaty signing she's supposed to sign a large part of it away. In that moment, she has all the power. She, She could declare, no, like, I'm not signing this treaty, I'm going to keep the power, we're kicking this corporation out, etc. And presumably her people would go along with that. I don't know. I guess we don't yeah, we, we don't know the political situation of like how the people feel about her specifically. But it, it to mm-hmm. me it feels different from Killmonger because she has a much clearer path to the power to make the changes than he does. That's fair. I, I guess I felt like she felt like my impression was that she was kind of getting railroaded, especially because the whole republic wants this as well. And and so I was kind of seeing seeing things in here of this, you know, a country where it has pretty terrible leadership, but the rest of the world wants that leadership because it has oil or, you know, whatever it is like that. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a part of the story that could have been a lot better developed, I think. What else? What are the last things you want to talk about from this book we haven't brought up yet? I want to continue to talk about the prophecies because there's some oh, ones. Yeah. There's some ones in this. Like I said, this was written and published in between um, the Last Jedi and the Rise of Skywalker. And there is a prophecy in this novel that says, "When the righteous lose the light, evil once dead shall return." <laughs> uh, so somehow Palpatine mm-hmm. returned. It's right there. Oh, it's interesting because to me that that was a very clearly about the the Jedi have lost their light. The Jedi have fallen, and and in the process that was already beginning here, but really is accelerated by the time Palpatine comes to power as Chancellor, and that that's what it was referring to. But you're right; it could refer to both. Uh, and there, there's actually a second one. Uh, he who learns to conquer death will, through his greatest student, live again. So that one's a little more ambiguous, but it could also be referring to Palpatine. Who knows? Yeah, well, <clears throat> that one, remember that this is certainly in the book, but also in um in, in the book that is Legends. But in, in the movie, Palpatine tells Anakin the story of Darth Plagueis the Wise and that mm. Darth Plagueis learned to conquer death. So that, that's what I, I was thinking that that one was referring to. So he who learns to conquer death is Plagueis, and then will through his greatest student live again. So do you think that that is referring to um, Plagueis or Snoke being a Plagueis clone? Because that's been some speculation. There's been some speculation about that. Uh, maybe. Could be. I, I guess I'm kind of anti-prophecy, so I think part of the point is that some of these are supposed to be kind of dumb, but but I don't know. It's, I I'd, I want to find some interviews with Claudia Gray and get a sense of like because it may well be that she thinks this book is the like no this is why prophecy is right and why Qui Gon was right all along I don't know uh, and then the other thing like you mentioned it briefly that uh, the jewel thieves right mm-hmm. two other characters in this novel pretty prominent characters actually and we haven't really talked about them Rahara Wick and Pax. Mm-hmm. Marafur is how I'm gonna pronounce that. Star Wars. Thanks for thanks for these names, Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, they they, really need pronunciation guides. These characters were interesting, like especially Pax. Mm -hmm. It is said in this novel that he was raised by protocol droids, like up until he was a I think a teenager or something or a preteen, and so he has a very um. there was a character in Lost Stars that we kind of read as uh, kind of potentially autistic. And I think Pax mm-hmm. is prevented, presented in a similar way that because he was raised by protocol droids does not have a lot of, you know, the, the human interaction skills. Yeah. There were a lot of times where he's talking about how frustrated he is, that he is trying to express an idea but that someone else hears his idea differently, and and that he ha- that that this idea that he should have to account for how someone else might hear his idea while expressing his idea, 
it's something that for me as a neurodiverse person, I related to so hard. And like, I, like, I do think it's important to do that. And I now try to do that. But I, I, there were so many passages of packs where I was like, I feel you, brother. I so, so hard feel you right now. Sorry, I'm just getting a lot of. Yeah, I think my internet is just really bad today because it. Can I turn off? If you click the camera, there you go. But now I can't see you. <laughs> well, your voice sounds a little clearer to me now. Um, all right, let me, let me reset. So we're talking about packs, right? Right. And I, I just talked about how, for me as a neurodivergent person, like I really related to him a lot. Yeah. It's really interesting to me that Claudia has written two novels now with characters like this and mm -hmm. presenting packs in this way is, um, you know, because autism is genetic, right? But in this case, Maybe it's being presented as more of a learned behavior, so he might he might not have autism, but acts like a protocol droid. So to other people, like it, it has a similar effect. Well, my my understanding is that, and again, I'm I'm not a professional here, but that we there's still an awful lot about autism we don't know, and that there are there, there's a lot of debate as far as I can tell about whether there is a sort of biologically caused condition. <clears throat> that may well be genetic, but certainly also that people can go through certain environmental issues um, or or just where they're raised or how they're raised that will either cause them to also be neurodiverse in some way or mm. at least have symptoms of that in some way. So, yeah, I think I think it's a very broad question. Okay. That's fair. Fair enough. Um, and, and again, like for like a minor character in this novel, right, like the – fifth or sixth most important character. I, I think it's such an interesting thing to have to present as part right. of this character. And that's again, like with, with her novels, like I would, I would read a, a novel about uh, Pax and Rahara and their adventures as, as jewel thieves in the underworld in the future. Yeah. Right. Like, so she's, she's done such a great job of taking the characters we know and giving us great backstory about them. But also, uh, like I said, I didn't like Fanry as much, Rail, maybe. But these two, like, I would read another novel about these two. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think I, I didn't really talk about them much because um, they're not really essential to the plot. But they're really yeah. essential to, like, the color of the novel and the flavor, the, the feeling of the novel. And, yeah, they're fantastic characters. And I – because she – we talked a lot about him. She's an escaped slave. And so yes, that gives yes. her a certain passion – and there's a lot of great stuff about how the two of them drive each other crazy, but also balance each other really well in a way that I, I, I'm also romantic. And I feel like th there's clearly a discussion of them having romantic feelings for each other that I just thought was it was all very well done. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for bringing up the uh, ex-slave thing, because that actually like is also a big part of Qui-Gon's journey in this novel is his stance mm -hmm. on slavery and, and kind of questioning like why the Jedi and or the Republic can't or won't do anything to stop it in the galaxy i think she even asks him that like you're a jedi like why don't you stop this right although again it sort of is like it it sets him up at the end that now he's like going to be much more anti-slavery and then you know however many years later he's like yeah. oh well i can't buy your mother out of slavery oh well well yeah i don't know i think it is to me, it's setting up why he's so passionate about freeing Anakin. Like, the combination mm -hmm. of he's a slave and the chosen one, right? Like, two-for-one deal. And so he, he – I think he dislikes slavery, as you should, and mm -hmm. goes to great lengths to free him. And, yeah, right. we can kind of question, like, why, why does he not go to similar lengths to free Shmi, especially when you're – flying around with the queen of an entire planet who can presumably like buy her out. But I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's for another time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of ethical questions I think that raises, but it is nice to see it, it addressed further. <clears throat> it at least 
gives us a better idea of who Qui-Gon Jinn is as a person, especially with Mm -hmm. regards to slavery. And I think that helps a little. Yep. Very much so. We had a lot to say about this. Um, Are you okay if we move on to the one piece of feedback we got uh, from the last episode and then we can wrap up and then go to our members only section? Yeah, I think we're good. Again, like to, to sum it up, there's a couple of characters who I was a little lukewarm on, but overall, like I enjoyed this novel a lot and I really enjoyed, I don't know, like seeing Qui-Gon Jinn again, reading Qui-Gon Jinn again mm-hmm. is something, he's so central to who Anakin becomes like in that very short time. And there's been a lot speculated and written about, you know, like what kind of master could he have been to Anakin? Could he have saved slash prevented Anakin's <clears throat> fall? That yeah. kind of thing. So learning more about Qui-Gon is always awesome. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Well, so here's the bit of feedback we got. Uh, we've been getting a bunch, and, and I'm just going to kind of space it out over different things, especially uh, when I have different guests on. And this was about our Glub Shido episode uh, <laughs> that Riki was on. Uh, just a couple, uh, both Riki and Sarah Hayashi were on. Uh, and it comes from Sylvia. Sylvia writes, love the talk about Glub Shidos. I hate the strike, but I'm glad you're doing some of these more outside-of-the-box topics. As a follow-up question... Who is a book character you'd love to see on screen? Thanks for the show, Sylvia. Who is a book character? Um, I mean, yeah, like we've already gotten Thrawn. <laughs> that had to have been like everyone's number one, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of fandom out there who is clamoring for Amara Jade in, in live action or animation. I'm not mm-hmm. really there, mostly because yeah. of her relationship with Luke. Like I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really want that or need that in my life. Yeah. Um. So yeah, like who else is there out there? Um. I guess Ta- Talon, Talon Card. Mm-hmm. The- yeah, he's a fun one. He's kind of the Han Solo uh, stand-in in, in in those Thrawn books. Yeah, which is funny because Han Solo is also in the books, but and- he's another smuggler. Well, he is the stand-in insofar as like Han Solo and Lando go respectable right right there they became generals like lando becomes a, a businessman like a legitimate businessman i guess he was already on Bespin. but mm-hmm. talon is the guy who is still in into smuggling so yeah he takes over that role of like well if you need something done you know outside of the bounds of the law give me a call and he doesn't mm-hmm. always join the fight maybe until the climax like he's always kind of on the fence of like you know i'll help you out here but like i'm not in this for your your new republic so he's right. definitely like a console stand in yeah i think he'd be a really fun one to see on screen i think i would really love to see cuz i think you're right with like the problem is with some of these characters they've had such complete character arcs that you sort of wonder like how could they how could that translate to on screen um and so I think some of the ones I'd most like to see are ones where we only get part of them in a book. Um, and so I think, yeah, like honestly, like like Pax and and the other woman whose name I don't remember would I think would be great. I think um, some of my favorite books are the by E.K. Johnson, the Queen's Shadow books about Padme. They really go into much greater detail about her handmaidens. And one of them like it was played by Kira Knightley for like five seconds and she did die. Um uh, on screen in the prequels, but we really got nothing of those characters. So I would really love those. And frankly, I think seeing some other Sith would have been really great too. Like we're getting to see more of like what the Jedi were like, but like, you know, Darth Bane or Darth Plagueis or even just some like other random Sith who we haven't really heard much about. I think it'd be fun to see on screen at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking Yendor, someone who I mentioned, Yendor is just like sprinkled in to like in the background mm-hmm. of like multiple of these novels. I'm like, who is this guy? Right? Yeah. Um, Kip, I think his name was Kip Duros in like the second or third trilogy of uh, Legends novels. I think it's Jedi Academy trilogy. Mm-hmm. He is presented as a force user who like falls deep to the dark side. He uses a weapon, I think it's called the Sun Crusher. <laughs> Oh dear. It's, it's like the new Death Star, right? But it's not a space station. It's like one, literally like one ship, but it can fire 
like some kind of special torpedo into a star that causes it to supernova. Mm-hmm. And he, he goes around and uses it to destroy like Imperial star systems. So he's like doing it quote unquote for good, but he's still killing like millions or billions of people. Yeah. And yeah. he comes back from that. He's doing it because like a Sith ghost is kind of like possessing slash tricking him mm-hmm. like, through force whispers. So he comes back from that at the end of the trilogy. And I don't know that there was any follow up, but I would have loved to have seen like someone who fell deep, deep into the dark side and committed, you know, mass genocide. Like, how do you deal mm. with someone like that who now is walking the light? And maybe we're, yeah. we're could we could see a little bit of that um, with uh, Riva, right? Mm-hmm. Someone who fell to the dark side and maybe has put it be, be behind her. Like, that's the kind of story that I want to see, whether it's her yeah. or like someone like Kip. Um, I would, I would love more of that because too many of the people who fall to the dark side and then redeem themselves die immediately, right? In these, mm-hmm. in these stories. Yeah, no, it's so true. Deal with the consequences. I think that's often what happens in these stories. It's part of why, and I know you and I have both talked about this, that I love Zuko so much in Avatar The Last Airbender because he doesn't get that easiest – not that death is easy, but you know, he doesn't get that like, I did one good thing and now I'm dead and so you have to remember me fondly. He has to do the hard work of redemption. So Yeah. yeah. Well, great question, Sylvia. Thank you so much. Riki, as always, thank you so much for being on this episode. We're going to have a little bit more for our members in just a moment. But for those who aren't sticking around, Riki, where can people find more of your stuff? I Nowhere. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Blue Sky? I want Blue Sky, but I haven't – I don't even know what they're called. They're not tweets, but I haven't yeah. posted much on there. But I'm squatting, trying to get a feel for that social media like website and community. But mostly, mm-hmm. like I've just not been – on anywhere right now that's fair that's fair it's it's not the worst thing to be taking a break from all yeah, of it, to be yeah. honest so uh i am not doing the same um you can find me all over social media under the ethical panda or variations thereof these podcasts are part of the true story fm family podcast if you go there you will get uh all the other podcasts that are uh, being made there but you also find all of our show show contact information uh that's so you can send in feedback we love feedback we love to hear your thoughts uh, have you read this book? You haven't read it. What do you think about it? What do you think about what we had to say about it? Would love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, and there you can also find our membership. We are a member-supported podcast. All the content is fr- – our base content is always free. It's going to remain so. But we do do um, – members get ad-free content. Members get um, some bonus content, which we put at the episode uh, end of most episodes. And, and of course, just it's a way to help support the podcast. And right now during the strike, it's a way to help support the strike fund. So please think about becoming a member. All the information is in the show notes or uh, on the podcast homepage. Uh, it's $5 a month, $55 for a year. Save a little bit of money that way. And you get to support us. And it really means the world to us and, and helps us to keep the lights running. So thank you so much on behalf of myself and Riki. We have spoken. 